Welcome to this copyrighted broadcast of Light Lit. I'm your host, David Levin. In this episode, I will be reading the second half of Chapter 1, entitled Cancer's Grip, in my novel Rue. Within a few minutes, Father Tom knocked on the door of room 512 and heard a man call for him to enter. Mr. Johnson, how is Robert doing today? The priest asked. A black man sat at the foot of a bed, an angry expression on his face. He did not look at the priest, but continued to gaze on the withered body of a child. Two IVs ran into the boy's arms and an oxygen tube connected to his nose. The youngster lay motionless. Suddenly, he became restless. He turned his head from side to side and moaned. The man pushed the nurse call button. He gently stroked the boy's head. Try and relax, Bubby. You'll feel better in a minute. Everything's going to be fine. I promise. A male nurse soon was at the boy's bedside. He watched droplets of clear liquid run into an IV while adjusting the rate of flow. He's feeling some pain. The morphine needs to be increased. That should do it for now, the nurse said while watching the heart monitor. The boy became quiet, and the nurse left. Father Tom's anxiety waned until he looked at Mr. Johnson glaring at him. Why has this happened to my son? What did he ever do to deserve so much suffering? Johnson asked with a whine in his voice. The priest said, We don't know why there is suffering, Mr. Johnson. God doesn't want people to hurt, but it happens. I think because our lives are imperfect. Johnson shot a defiant look at him. My son did not cause anyone's life to be imperfect. Bubby hurt nobody. He stopped and looked through Father Tom before continuing. Do you believe that God is all-powerful, that he can do what he pleases at any time? Yes, I believe in the power of God, Father Tom said. Johnson's face was contorted. Why does he not answer my prayers and save my son from this disease, from the terrible agony he is going through? Bubby doesn't deserve this. He's just 13 years old. He hasn't had a chance to live. Why must God let this torture go on day after day? Did you see him become restless and cry out just then? Father Tom did not respond. Johnson spoke through clenched teeth. He does that because even the strongest medicine can't keep him easy. His pain is so great, nothing can totally relieve it. What God would let that happen to an innocent child if he could take the suffering away? Tell me that, Father. Tell me. I I don't have all the answers, Mr. Johnson. I must rely on faith to guide me through life's troubles. Johnson shot back faith. Faith is built on facts that create trust, not on empty promises. Your God supposedly will answer our prayers, but he hasn't answered mine. Why not? Have I asked for something that is selfish, the life of a child, and end to this terrible suffering? I will tell you the problem, Father. There is no God, and you are feeding a pack of lies to the people. Father Tom spoke boldly. God is not a lie. 
I'm sure of that. Johnson seemed undeterred. Show me some proof, just one single fact that tells me your God cares about my family. I don't deal in objective facts. God doesn't operate that way. The priest said, his stomach a hard ball. Johnson rose and pounded a fist into his other hand. He fixed a cold stare on the priest. Get out of this room. You can't help my son and I won't listen to your lies anymore. Father Tom reeled at Johnson's rage. There was no telling what the man might do. Father Tom quickly left the room, relieved to be away from the man's anger. Confusion began to replace his relief. Johnson had raised points that troubled the priest and doubt took hold. He wondered why children suffered, why an omniscient God had created a world where torment would happen and why desperate prayers for healing seemingly went unanswered. Troubling questions swirled through him. Claddy's familiar voice interrupted his thoughts. Father, could you take a few minutes and visit with a new patient? She and her family just arrived from Louisiana. They don't have any pastor in Houston. The Lampsons are down in room 501. I think they are pretty much overwhelmed by everything. Sure, no problem, he said with a deep sigh. His steps felt heavy as though he were walking against the tide in shallow ocean surf. The priest's troubled thoughts continued until he found himself standing outside a room where a sign on the wall read, Marla Lampson, Dr. Rangel. The door was not fully closed. Through the slight opening, he heard soft humming of a woman Rhythmic, harmonic tones. The sound was so captivating he did not want to interrupt. The humming soon became a song, almost like an infant's lullaby. Hush, my baby, don't you cry. Mama's here. You never gonna die. I'll hold you through the cold, dark night. Protect you till morning's warm light. Sleep, my little one, don't you cry. Mama's here, you're not going to die. The humming continued. Father Tom's emotions rose, and he knocked on the door. The low voice responded, Yes? He walked in to see a large black woman cradling a young girl in her arms. The girl was sleeping, and Father Tom whispered, Are you Mrs. Lampson? The woman smiled and nodded. And I suppose this is your daughter, Marla? He asked, This is my darling. Isn't she beautiful? The mother said. Marla was about 15 and her skin was very light for a Negro. The child's features were fine, with a small turned up nose and high cheekbones. The mother focused on her daughter and the smile left her. They say she has a bad cancer in her bone. The doctors want to cut off her arm. I can't hardly let them do that. My husband and I don't agree on it. He went outside to smoke, probably to get away from all this. He says we have to let them do it to save her life. I don't think that kind of medicine will work. Not really. The doctors weren't too optimistic, kind of like there's no real hope because bone cancer can't be stopped. I pray they're wrong. Lordy, lordy, we hope there's another way. 
Father Tom found it hard to say anything. After a short silence, he tried to be helpful. I think the doctors are normally reserved. They wouldn't want to get your hopes too high just in case things don't turn out. This is a real fine cancer hospital. Lots of people have been helped here. We came to Houston because of the reputation this place has. They say it's the biggest cancer hospital in the world. Some of our family didn't want us to come to Houston. They said Marla would never leave here alive. Wanted us to take her someplace else. She swallowed, her eyes filled with tears. Before Father Tom could respond, the child opened her eyes and yawned. Her mother smiled broadly. How does my baby feel? Unblemished skin on the girl's forehead wrinkled. My arm still hurts. The woman patted her child gently. Your doctors are going to do something about that real soon. Who is that man? Marla asked as she gazed at Father Tom through half-open eyes. He's a priest who came especially to see you, her mother said. Father Tom tried to be sanguine. I wanted to meet you and your parents and wish you well. Marla seemed shy at first, but warmed quickly after she had studied her visitor. She cupped a hand to her mother's ear and whispered something, and they giggled. Laughter followed. Father Tom was delighted to hear sounds of mirth in this dreary place, especially the mother's low belly laugh. He could detect a nascent smile. Hey, let me in on the joke. I like a good laugh too, he said, as Marla's smile continued to grow. Marla sat up straight, grasped the hairbrush, and began to groom herself. Mother Lamson shook her head. Girl, you are going to be the death of me, she turned to Father Tom. Marla told me she had never seen such a handsome priest before that your square chin and big dimples should be in the movies, that your eyes are... What did you call them, Marla? The girl quickly answered, bedroom eyes. He could feel himself blush. Uh, thanks, I think. You must be feeling pretty good, he said, totally embarrassed. Marla's face became serious again. My arm still hurts pretty bad. I hope the doctors will fix me up soon. I don't want to be here too long. My cousins live south of New Iberia, near Avery Island. They want me to stay with them. I got lots of friends down there, some real good ones. Father Tom was struck by the beauty of the girl. Her eyes were very large and perfectly framed by long, shiny hair cascading toward her waist. Long, curved eyelashes added to her pulchritude. For a moment, he became troubled by the thought of this gorgeous child being harmed by surgery, drugs, and radiation, the ravaging effects of which he had seen too often. He almost wanted to agree with Marla's mother to take her out of this place, far away from the things that would disfigure and cause pain. He hated the fact that the girl's innocent misconception would be shattered. After a short time, Father Tom gained control of his emotions. His throat was tight, making it hard to talk, but more troubling, he could think of nothing comforting to say. Then suddenly, inexplicably, a warm sense emerged. Marla, that song your mother sings, you know the one? Sure. Believe it. 
Everything is going to be fine. Just wait and see. I have a strong feeling about you, and it's good. He left, but his thoughts soon turned dark. Something began to tear at him, an evil emotion that produced a frown. Father Tom felt a sense of foreboding. For just an instant, his mind's eye saw Marla's face tear-streaked and sullen. The ominous sense shook his confidence and his faith. The elevator was a welcome sight, and once inside, Father Tom closed his eyes to relieve some of the depression that had set in. Doors opened, and he quickly exited the building. As he stood on the entrance steps, anger welled in the priest. He wondered why cancer still gripped mankind so tightly, why it seemed to be incurable. Suddenly, he felt a sense of panic. Maybe the disease could never be cured. Perhaps it would afflict more people as man's environment worsened. He rubbed tired eyes and breathed deeply. The Houston night was cool and refreshing. He inhaled deeply to clear his mind. Father Tom started toward his car but stopped to enjoy the sweet smell of night-blooming jasmine. He loved that fragrance. It helped erase the lingering aroma of alcohol. As he took another deep breath, the priest, ser- the priest heard someone speak to him from nearby shadows. Don't move. He turned toward the voice and saw a black boy emerge, holding a knife that reflected nearby street light. The youth appeared to be about 18. He was over six feet tall and stocky. While he didn't look angry or high, the boy gave the appearance he meant business. You got any money? Give it to me right now. Father Tom held out a hand. Now, son, why don't you put that knife away and we can talk? The youth became agitated. I don't want to talk. Give me your money or I'll cut you. Father Tom knew he had to act quickly and he sprang toward the youth with speed and power that obviously surprised him. In the blink of an eye, the priest held the boy in a vice-like grip. The youngster struggled. You son of a bitch! Let me go. Father Tom heard someone nearby call for help, and a crowd gathered. He heard tones of a cell phone. The boy tried to turn and break free, but Father Tom pushed him to the ground and placed a knee on his back. I can't do that. You might hurt someone if I release you, or you'll probably kill yourself doing stupid stuff like this. If you don't let me loose, I'll hurt you. The infuriated reply was punctuated with wild swings that merely found air. I'm not worried about that, the priest said, tightening his hold on the attacker. The youth struggled furiously. He tried to kick backward at the priest, but a powerful grip subdued him. After several minutes, the boy tired and his body lay exhausted on the ground. He began to cry, please let me go. I won't do it again, I promise. You broke the law with a deadly weapon. I have to turn you over to the police. It's for your own good. What kind of brother are you anyway? A fancy priest telling me what's good for me? You don't know nothing about me. I got a record, man. If you turn me in, they'll call me an adult and send me to do hard time. I don't want to go to prison. They'll rape me. 
I'm not going there. Please, mister, don't do this. I was all right till that damn no-pass, no-play rule screwed me. If it wasn't for that, I'd be headed for college, and they'd give me a car and money. But I flunked in school, and they wouldn't let me play football no more. Nobody gave a damn about me, not the coaches or the teachers or even my own people. You understand, don't you? A police car sped to the scene and screeched to a stop. Its flashing lights turned the night into strobe-like confusion. Two officers quickly handcuffed the youth and placed him in the patrol car. As the police cruiser drove away, the boy focused a penetrating stare at Father Tom. His dark eyes did not convey anger or rage, but a sense of fear the wide-eyed terror of a lost child. Father Tom watched taillights fade into the night and felt sad.